Good night. Okay, I'm speaking to Dr. Mike Mills. He's a consultant, gastroenterologist. Oh, what a good person. And we have a lot of ties. I mean, from high school. And separate so apart from that, he is an excellent resource physician, gastroenterologist, works at University Hospital and works, I believe it's Phoenix Avenue is the location. And I will post the number so that if anybody needs to get in contact, they can do that as well. And of course, so welcome, Mike. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. So I, I, we were just uh, laughing a bit that I'm taking up your time, so I need to hurry up here. So I'm very pleased to have an opportunity to come and speak to you and Hopefully your listeners will also feel as if the evening has been well spent. Yes, I, I definitely think they will. The issue at hand, and for those non-medics, there's uh, something interesting occurred recently. I think it could be this week. And to back up, to enter that discussion, uh, we, I had a colleague that is... I'd say a few years older than me, so I'd say early 50s. And both herself and her husband underwent colonoscopies. And interestingly, both of them had polyps, just a few. And of course, both were sent to the lab. And hers turned out, his was benign, for lack of a better term. But hers turned out to be dysplastic. And okay. so, interestingly, well, not interesting, I should say, to give you further information. So her husband was told, next one, I think it's 10 years, is what he was told, if I'm not, I don't want to misrepresent this, but she was told, I believe, to re repeat it next year. Okay. And I said, that, I said that to say that, that dysplasia precedes the big C or cancer, and or is thought to. And I, I think there's a lot of value in colonoscopy still. And why I say it still is that to get to the, the root of this, uh, the reason why we're talking today, or one of the principal reasons, is that there recently was a paper published that the essence of it, if I'm not being too simplistic, uh, Mike, is that doing colonoscopy, the authors, are, are seeming to suggest that it does not reduce mortality. Now you can you can draw your own conclusions from there, but that is the the punchline of it. So <laughs> I was wondering, what are your views on the paper and your thoughts on colonoscopy in general? In general. All right. So the paper you're referring to was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is maybe one of the most, if not the most prominent and well-recognized and respected medical journals out there. And it publishes articles on a number of different areas. So this particular article was published, I think, about the 8th of October, so very recently. And it was a trial which looked at the outcomes in patients who were having colonoscopies done to see whether the effect of the colonoscopy was what it was supposed to be doing which is basically improving the detection of cancer, but also furthermore reducing the mortality or the amount of deaths associated with detection of 
So in essence, we all do colonoscopies as part of the screening for colorectal cancer to try and pick up the stage which is before the cancer, which is a polyp, which can develop into cancer, or to find cancers very early before individuals have any symptoms so that their outcomes could be as best, you know, the best outcome as possible, the cheapest in terms of accessing cost and the least in terms of um, any morbidity or illness and reducing death. So that's a principle of screening. So when we do screening, we're actually looking for the polyp, which is the tissue that you described in the two individuals, those doctors who had their colonoscopies done. And those polyps take a long time to grow into cancer. They're like little warty growths inside the colon, which are made up of abnormal cells. And if you don't remove them, then in a percentage of individual, depending on certain things like the size of the polyp and the type of polyp, they will progress and turn into colon cancer. So if you can find them and remove them, then we can prevent that from happening. Now, when we talk about types of polyps, you mentioned the term dysplasia. And most of the polyps that we see do have some degree of dysplasia. The dysplasia um, represents some abnormal growth in the cells, but it is not um, cancer itself. So dysplastic cells can um, develop into true cancer cells when they you know, grow out of control of a normal mechanism of the body. You have two types of dysplasia, low-grade and high-grade. And if you find polyps that have low-grade or high-grade dysplasia, we usually remove them and ask you to come back at an interval after the colonoscopy to try and prevent you from developing um, further polyps and ultimately cancer. And this interval will vary. and The guidelines have changed. So one year, to be fair, is pretty um, suggestive of a high-grade dysplastic polyp, meaning that's, the, that's just before cancer. Mm-hmm. Most individuals will have a low-grade dysplastic polyp, and in that setting, you should come back in three years or five years, depending on the size of the polyp and the number. Now, this trial is important because it suggested, as you say, that if you were to do colonoscopies in this data set, most of the people who did the... Um, or the outcomes of the study suggested that doing colonoscopies did not affect uh, mortality in the way we thought it did. And that would be disappointing, of course, because you know we've been looking at colonoscopy as a so-called gold standard. And if it is not reducing mortality, then what's the point of doing it really? Now, the key thing, if you drill down into this study, is you have to look at the way it was designed. So what they did was basically, I mean, various countries in Europe, Poland, for example, um, these countries had uh, a screening plan nationally where they sent out an invitation to people to come and do their colonoscopies. And then they looked to see at an interval whether having sent out thousands of invitations, whether those individuals who received the invitations had a reduction in their mortality from colorectal cancer. And that was basically what the study was saying. And at the end of the day, it is true 
that the data suggested that the benefits of doing screening by this method did not show that there was a significant um, reduction in mortality enough to justify using the colonoscopy as a screening tool. But when you drill down even further in the data, you'll see that there were two, basically two groups of people. So everybody received an invitation to do their colonoscopy, but not everyone turned up for the colonoscopy. So only 42% of the people who received the invitation actually came and did the test. So most of the people actually didn't turn up, but they still analyzed the data as if those individuals had turned up, but their outcomes obviously would not have been significant because they didn't actually achieve anything. They didn't find any polyps or any cancers or do anything. So when you look at the data combining both groups, those who didn't do the test and those who did the test, when you average out everything, it looks like no benefit was gained. But when you separate the groups and look at those who actually did the test, so that 42% who did colonoscopy, there was a significant improvement in detection of polyps and also in mortality from colorectal cancer. And this was comparable to previous um, data looking at the effect of colonoscopy and other screening tools. So it did actually support the use of colonoscopy, but because the way the study was designed, um, when they lumped everything together, it didn't appear that way. And this is what really what it boils down to. So and it's the, still a very useful test, but it has to be done. That's the, that's the key point. And the, well, there, there are several take-homes on me, which I'm sure all of us can speak to, like that doctors, and I learned this in COVID, like that mm-hmm. doctors, like everybody else, they, I don't want to say crave, but they like or... We all need some amount of attention to progress to some extent. So sometimes I wonder okay. about that. The title was a bit <clears throat> right. You, okay. Yes. Based on what? No, you know, it's a, it's a, the best that's uh, not my, my strongest area, but even mm-hmm. I could see that it, it seemed to me a lot of, a lot of holes in what just, just yes. coming through it. So it, yes. it's, uh, that, that aspect of it was very interesting. There has been, they, I heard one of the physicians was saying that it it is a good test regardless, and their test, their the study proved that. Another thing that came out of some of the discussion I heard: what what are your views on flex flex uh, the sigmoidoscopy? Flexible sigmoidoscopy, right? Flexible sigmoidoscopy. I'm sorry. Okay, so there's no doubt that. Sigmoidoscopy, which is basically looking at one, just a segment of the colon, so not looking at the whole colon like a colonoscopy. Sigmoidoscopy has been shown still to reduce the mortality associated with colonoscopy with colorectal cancer. And in fact, the first screening test that showed benefit was sigmoidoscopy. So when you look at the data, um, sigmoidoscopy in combination with fecal occult blood testing was beneficial in reducing mortality in colorectal cancer. So we didn't actually have colonoscopy data initially. And we just kind of used the data from sigmoidoscopy to presume that colonoscopy was even more effective because it was looking at the entire colon compared to just a limited section. So there's no doubt that sigmoidoscopy, even though you don't look at the whole colon, you're looking at the left side 
and you're not able to see what's happening on the right, even just doing that alone is beneficial in reducing mortality. So there's nothing suggesting that, you know, um, sigmoidoscopy is not effective or should not be used. It can be used, but usually it's used in combination with fecal cold blood testing and to ensure that individuals who have an abnormal um, sigmoidoscopy should go on to do a full colonoscopy to evaluate the rest of the colon as well. But as a screening tool nationally, definitely there is data supporting its use at a national level. It's because I, what unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, how mm -hmm. the type of work that I do, the cost matters significantly, I suppose, all of us in yes. this country. And based on this was some it was a US panel I was watching a video mm -hmm. and they were saying that the the it's almost like a flex a flexible sig might be ten percent or hundreds of dollars versus can run you over a thousand US dollars for colonoscopy. That's a significant difference. No, I the in terms of what I don't know, and I guess I should ask, you know, the Morbidity associated with the procedure is it similar for for the colonoscopy versus the flexible colonoscopy? Yes. No, no. Okay, yes. So definitely, the procedure of sigmoidoscopy itself is relatively safe compared to the colonoscopy. The colonoscopy on a whole is very safe. So the complication rate will vary depending on the complication you're looking at. But if you're looking at mortality. It's approximately one in about two million on average. So that's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. Sigmoidoscopy, it's even rarer. The difference predominantly is that sigmoidoscopy generally, usually, does not involve sedation or certainly not the same degree of sedation as the colonoscopy. The procedure is shorter and usually involves patients receiving a limited um, laxative prep and usually without sedation. So the mortality figures are different. The cost figures are different because of, of course, the procedure time is shorter, preparation time is shorter, the support that's necessary in terms of um, sedation, whether it's conscious sedation or deep sedation or full anesthesia is going to be completely different compared to colonoscopy. So the differences are there. And cost-wise, um, if cost is an issue, would I suggest, suggest doing sigmoidoscopy versus colonoscopy? Yeah. Maybe not. Um, at the national level, if we were to roll out um, screening, I think the data is quite clear that if you do only fecal occult blood testing without sigmoidoscopy, you achieve similar amounts or a similar benefit in terms of reduction in mortality and the ability to pick up um, abnormalities, which will then lead you to do full colonoscopy. Yes. So I think sigmoidoscopy is, you know, less and less in vogue as a diagnostic tool. Well, you know, as I said, this is such a hotbed. I watch a few videos and it's one of my colleagues when I mm. come off. When we come off, I will tell you who told me about the study. Mm. Which sure. I don't want to, to load him up on this right now. But sure. the, the, so you kind of don't call blood and then basically it's saving money if if anything, well, you know, and try and get the colonoscopy done. The... Yes, so for individuals, definitely. Doing the occult blood annually. So most screening programs 
would advocate using fecal occult blood testing as a primary tool, but bear in mind that fecal occult blood testing as a screening tool for colorectal cancer is part of a two-stage process. So once you engage that process, you have to be prepared to act on that positive findings. So once there's blood in the stool, you have to go on to do a colonoscopy to identify the cause. And so invariably, you will be, you know, subjects to individuals to a procedure once the test is positive. But on the flip side, if the test is negative and they're able to keep up with the annual testing, because it has to be repeated annually to be effective as a screening tool, then the benefit is realized there. I heard you say in an interview earlier this year, Mike, that mm-hmm. you recommend 45 views because I noticed the U.S. physicians, they mm-hmm. have this wide time span, this U.S. PTF, 45 to 75. Yes. Uh, that's a wide band. So do, do mm-hmm. we start at 45? Right. So traditionally and historically, we would have had screening from age 50. But over the last two years, the age has fallen to 45. And most of the international um, literature and society's guidelines would recommend 45. And that's predominantly because there's been a kind of a shift in the prevalence figures. So younger individuals are turning up with colorectal cancer. And if you're doing the screening at 50, you're going to miss a small cohort of people who would have had an ability to have detection quite early. And this particularly applies to certain populations like African-Americans, for example, where most of the data is coming from. And so that has prompted the age shift to 45. Now, our population, we haven't necessarily um, looked at the data formally, but informally looking at the prevalence figures and where the peaks are. We already had a peak of colorectal cancer, which is a few years below the average peak for the American population. So already our figures suggest that using a screening tool which starts at a younger age will be beneficial for us. So that's why the 45 is something which we have also adopted and um, most individuals have a recommendation for average risk screening to begin at that age. So if like our colleague's husband, I get a, a polyp that is basically normal benign, when do I follow up? So if I were to do one, say this year. Okay. All right. So the first thing to recognize is that all polyps are benign, basically. All right. So once you start to speak about malignancy, you're talking about cancer. Yes. Okay. So once you speak about polyp, the best polyp to have, if you don't have a polyp at all, is a non-displastic polyp. Yes. So a polyp that does not have any dysplasia. And those are usually hyperplastic polyps for the adult population. So the hyperplastic polyp does not have any, for the most part, have any cancer potential. There are a few subtypes which we've called serrated polyps, which may have, but on average, a simple hyperplastic polyp, especially on the left side, does not increase your risk for colorectal cancer. They're very common. And usually the recommendation now, the Pfizer recommendation suggests that the interval does not change. So for average hyperplastic polyps, you still do your screening at 10 years. Now, if you have a dysplastic polyp, then you need to figure out, am I having low-grade dysplasia or high-grade? 
if it's low grade dysplasia, meaning the one that's furthest away from cancer, then if it's just a small polyp, a simple polyp, so less than two centimeters in size, not more than three in number, then you want to bring back individual at five years to do a follow-up colonoscopy. If it's a high-grade or high-risk polyp, so high-grade dysplasia, more than three polyps, more than two centimeters in size, then those individuals, you want to bring them back. If it's high-grade at one year, and if it's multiple low-grade polyps at three years, so the intervals will vary depending on the type of polyp, but you do have some leeway and you don't want to be too aggressive in screening. So if an individual is having, you know, a simple non-dysplastic polyp, um, the important thing is not to bring them back very early because you're really not going to pick up anything at that point. And, um, you know, one of the challenges we face is that um, individuals sometimes get appointments for return which are not in keeping with the guidelines and are not beneficial to the patient. The, you mentioned something which I think we should emphasize. In this yeah. instance, these would, that would be a therapeutic procedure if, if we find... Yes. So any... once a polyp is identified, the individual doing the, the colonoscopy has to be prepared to remove that polyp. So every time we go in, because we don't know, for the most part, we don't know what we're going to find. So you have to be prepared to remove the polyp at the time of the colonoscopy. Otherwise, you'd be having to re-prep patients and bring them back separately. Or if you're not qualified to do it, you may have to refer them elsewhere to have the procedure done. So, you know, patients should be prepared to have a therapeutic uh, procedure where we resect polyps time of the initial colonoscopy and um, that's separate from even though it's a diagnostic test we still have to do some intervention for it to be effective the when do you pass on your patient to a surgeon where's the role of surgery when you do your colonoscopies well definitely if we identify uh cancer. So once there's a cancer there, then the patient needs to have a resection done. So endoscopic resection of a cancer is just not enough. It doesn't matter how small it is. If the histology comes back saying cancer, then surgery has to be done. If we're identifying a polyp, which is a complicated, a very large polyp, in a difficult area, and we don't think that you know we can remove it completely, and we're concerned, then sometimes those patients also get sent to the surgeon. But that's not common. And uh, most times we're able to remove all polyps that are, you know, reasonably seated in the colon. So it's, it's usually just cases that have a cancer identified on histology that we would then refer them to the surgeon. Outside of that, uh, colonoscopy. So a lot of the times, I mean, you're very experienced you now. You would, on gross appearance, could it look like a polyp and be a cancer? Right, or yes. An... So definitely the experience of the individual doing the procedure is important. Uh, yeah, as you say, you know, having biopsied and removed many over the years, yeah, you can usually tell whether oh, this one looks like a cancer, this one looks like high-grade, this one's hyperplastic. There are certain things that we look for at the time, whether it 
you know, how, it, how it's attached to the surface of the colon, how mobile it is, how much we can lift it off the bed of the colon, what the surface pattern looks like. All those things can tell us, you know, reasonably certainty whether it is uh, going to end up being a malignancy or not. Sometimes we get surprised, but that's, that's not very common. This area, Mike, I find that general surgeons do colonoscopies, linear field do colonoscopies, and others do colonoscopies, which we'll touch the others in a minute. In terms of the general surgeons, how would a patient do research to know if... I'm really not sure the answer to this. It just occurred to me (laughs) talking to you. Mm-hmm. What's the specific question? Uh, okay, how would I know that this individual is is qualified to do what they're doing? Right. As a for example, to general surgery, th- that field you're trained really to operate not only mm-hmm. abdomen, all over the body, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tend to do a lot of work inside of the abdomen and on the right. intestine. So, I would suppose. But how would a patient do that research? I mean, I really don't know the answer to that. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, that's a fair question in this day and age. Uh, so the reality is that most patients would be referred to someone to the procedures. It's maybe a little more common to have people these days accessing the service on their own. But for the most part, especially if you're using um, insurance or something, a referral normally accompanies the procedure. So they go based on the recommendation of their primary doctor. And a lot of research over the years has proven that the most um, effective way to have someone do screening is on the recommendation of a family or trusted doctor. So they usually go based on that. So if the doctor is comfortable sending them to someone, they usually go that way. If they're unsure about the individual and there's still questions, then, of course, depending on the society you're living in, some places have criteria which suggest who should be doing what procedure under their, you know, remit. We In the Jamaica, we don't have a specialist register. Um, it's being developed, but at the moment, it's, it's very difficult to basically anyone is able to offer any procedure as they see fit. Of course, there are consequences. Um, Outside of that, there is no licensing body or accreditation body. It's not uncommon worldwide for more individuals outside the area of um, gastroenterology to do procedures though so mind you colonoscopy started with surgery so surgeons developed the procedure initially and then um, gi came afterwards and took the procedure further so surgeons worldwide do colonoscopies and endoscopies when they're trained to do so just as how there's training for gis um, they are nurse endoscopists in other environments so it doesn't have to be a GI doing the procedure to find out if the person you're going to is comfortable or com- confident or competent. Um, as I said, it's difficult when there is no... You have to 
it's the same that applies to any other area, whether it's whether you want to know if your GP is competent or gynecologist or EMT. It's very tricky. Um, yeah. It, 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 it would be a good idea to ask one of, I, I, I just speak it here, I was just thinking you would ask a physician you trust or maybe yes. get two physicians to. Uh, that's one way. It's not foolproof. Yes. At the end of the day, we rely, as doctors ourselves, we rely on many things to help us to tell if someone is competent. So if you are registered in a country, for example, then if you have confidence in the registering body with some medical counsel, then you know that people have a certain standard first of all to practice. Now, if you want to know if a surgeon is competent locally, um, if the person was trained at a certain institution, that helps. So usually we say, okay, if you're trained at university, then if you pass through, you must have reached a certain amount of competence. So usually they can use the institution that you're trained at if you know that, if you trust that place. If you don't know where the person is coming from, then you want to say, okay, where are they working, for example? So if someone is coming from, um, let's say they're coming from uh, Cuba, for argument's sake, and they were doing colonoscopy, and you didn't know them at all. And they said they went to school, a medical school or training college in Cuba. And you still don't know where that is. And then they came and they started to work at my office. Yes. Then if you thought that I was somebody competent and I wouldn't do anything potentially to injure individuals, then you would reasonably assume that, okay, this person coming in to work with Dr. Mills should have some kind of standard. So because I trust Dr. Mills, I'm going to trust this individual. So that's kind of how it goes in a little sense, in a bit, in a way. Yes. Um, if you don't have any way at all, then buyer beware. You know, yes. sometimes one thing you want to not pay attention to too much, and it's difficult, but what you don't want to do is go for the cheapest thing possible. As much as, you know, cost is definitely an issue and every little dollar helps and so on. But usually if you're trying to access medical care, um, you, you don't want to fall into the trap. And it's difficult, I know, where you go to the area that because it's the cheapest, let me try and get. You still have to try and make sure that there is some quality there. And I know that's difficult to do. That's exactly the point. And in medicine, not always, I find that... For example, some of the radiology suites, it will be, the pricier ones tend to be better. That's not the negative too. And there are these individuals that there are techs that offer, mm -hmm. for example, ultrasonography. And that's that's a wonderful, mm -hmm. you get affordable, especially in the common one is obstetrics. And yes. you will get a wonderful test. And But they have gone, and as I understand it, not my area, but... Obstetrical uh -huh. ultrasound, not the most difficult thing. Sometimes, okay. most of the time. No, this is, and there's irony here because sometimes you can miss some things that turn out to be big things. Uh -huh. And that comes back again to level of training. So, yeah. and, and, and I find that in your area too, in that, this particular test we're talking about, you have individuals uh -huh. that will be half, even quarter. And this, I had said, <laughs> gastroenterology surgeons and other the other group is you're being very kind there's another group that there are individuals that perhaps 
could do other things instead of this test in in my view mm-hmm. and they yeah. are really out there so that that's just something that we need to realize that and that's all medicine i would say not it only is. This, this country it's it's probably it's everywhere i mean i think in our society we're a little looser with the regulations and monitoring and so on so it's easier for anyone to do anything yes. and i'm not for one saying that you know as i said it has to be a surgeon it has to be a gi it could be an internist or it could be a, a gp or it could be a nurse who's doing the procedure if they're qualified and competent to do so awesome because we need a lot more individuals available that's a reality and of course once there's a vacuum people will try and fill the vacuum and if we're filling the vacuum and helping individuals that's fine no problem but um you know it's it's all well and good i always said it difference between someone who is properly trained in an area and somebody who is just getting by is when there's an issue so when things go okay and you follow the script um then no problem but the second something goes wrong the person who doesn't have the adequate training gets into problems and they're not able to maneuver that's where the complications arise or the errors are made and so on so it's really important especially when you're talking about screening where you're trying to find something when it's very early to prevent something happening later on that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing you know Great. Then we have to touch on a few other things i know we've been going a little while here and i know you're busy so i thank you again <laughs> the the barium animal in the past was especially when i was training still in vogue i would say as as to, to your point there weren't a lot of people offering colonoscopy as i recall and so the question is both in terms of barium enema and I think this this thing is called digital colonoscopy. What are you, how how does that fit into the mix with screening and the like? Sure. So there are two types of well, there are more, but they're generally two radiological studies that are used for evaluation of colon. So the barium enema, which is the more established older test, and then fairly recent for us, but not so recent internationally, is the virtual or CT colonography. So it's a CAT scan of the colon, and because it doesn't involve putting an instrument inside the colon, there is an added benefit of um, not requiring sedation, and and you can still identify if there are any polyps or anything. Compared to the barium enema, the CT is far more detailed, so it gives you a better idea as to whether there are small polyps there or, of course, a large tumor or something. And you can also see organs outside the bowel. So in a sense, it kind of assists in that way of picking up whether there is regional spread or distant spread in the abdomen. So it's an option. It's not as sensitive as an optical or regular colonoscopy. And so the interval for screening with a CT is five years as opposed to 10 years for the colonoscopy, regular colonoscopy. And of course, if you find anything abnormal, then you need to still do a regular colonoscopy to actually do biopsies or to remove or do any intervention to clarify. You could still theoretically miss some things with the CT. Not many things, but if the polyp is, for example, very flat, then you won't be able to see that on the CT. So those specific types of polyps which are flat 
would be missed on that scan. But as I said, they're not super common. And broadly speaking, there's still a benefit to doing it or offering a CT. So I, the barium enema, however, it has, does not have a role in screening for colorectal cancer, so it should not be offered as a screening tool at all. Um, it, it's just not sensitive enough to detect small polyps, and um, we know that it, more and more, even so, the skill of reading it accurately is, is being lost over time. But even outside that, it should not be used because it's not sensitive enough. And well, you're being very kind, but the barium enema is a very uncomfortable test, and the patients did not like that thing. And uh, uh, well, bear in mind, CT colonoscopy is the same in terms of having to administer fundras rectally. So I still have to put something inside the bottom, and I still have to take a washout and so on. So when you look at com comfort between CT and a regular colonoscopy, regular colonoscopy, because of the sedation, during the procedure, of course, the patients are not experiencing any discomfort at all. Whereas a CT, you still have them bloating and you still have to, you know, hold the contrast and, and turn you, and allow it. As usual, you're being diplomatic and it's very expensive. It's extremely expensive. Well, cost is relative. Yes. I mean, the reality is that you run the full gamut. What are you doing? regular colonoscopy or CT, as I said, you will find that the range will vary depending on where you go and so on. Oh, because the options for CT are not as extensive as regular colonoscopy. So there are only a few places doing it. Yes. So the competition, quote unquote, is not that great. And the costs are there to be recovered. And so for that reason, it you know it seems costly. But yeah, it, there's no doubt that there's a cost to these procedures. Generally speaking, you you have to you have to uh, bear that in mind. Yeah. Yes, the, the, I, I thought only X-ray diagnostics offered that on Ripon Road. Ah, uh, no, there are others. Others do. There's several others. Well, he's well. Let's just say that the the, the amount I was told was significant. And I, what I was indicating, yeah, well, mm -hmm. no, I mean, it not being well to my mind again, this is something that I wasn't really particularly familiar with it. I said it just, but I, I suggested to the patient that since it caused that, you could really, because mm -hmm. it's, I, I must admit, some patients, I suppose, who really are against sedation or maybe don't mm -hmm. want to sedate. This would be a good oh, option, yeah. or a option at least that you could consider. I think that's where mm -hmm. you would you would be able to. Well, yes, definitely. If you if you're afraid of sedation, and reasonably so, because nobody wants to be sedated unless they absolutely have to. And I'm not going to say there's zero risk. We already discussed the risks, and yeah. the older you are and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I've had patients do colonoscopy without sedation, mind you. So patients oh. who just yeah. So it nice. takes longer because we have to ensure now that when we're doing the procedure, the patient is entirely comfortable and they're awake. So it does take longer, and but it can be done. It's not impossible, mm -hmm. but I don't see it being the routine at all. Mm -hmm. So doing the CT as an alternate test in those patients, certainly I would say, yes, you can do, but I would also always caution the patient 
that if you're going to do the CT as a screening tool, you have to be prepared to do a colonoscopy after because if it shows something, you can't just rest on that and say, well, you know, let me go straight to surgery or whatever because you still need to do the regular colonoscopy. So I would sit with them and try and see what the risks and what their fears are and, you know, try and convince them that, okay, there is adequate reason to do this test versus this one, but bear in mind that if we have to move on to something else, we'll have to come back to this issue and face that issue at that time. So, you know, bear that in mind. Yes. I think, I think we've been through, we've spoken about a lot, and there's so much more I want to ask you, Mike. I think we're going to have to do a follow-up. Oh, no problem. It's getting to late, but I just like to ask everybody, and it's general just for my edification. We live in this wonderful country with all these bright individuals and our healthcare system, in my opinion, could be better. And I was just wondering, and we mentioned one of the things which you said implicitly, that screening, and as I'm told, we do not have a formal screening program for a lot of these diseases that we're talking about. And I, I'm just wondering, what are your views? How would you improve our healthcare locally? And you can, in your area, the whole country, any area at all. Well, first, for screening, definitely for colorectal cancer. I know that the ministry has a pilot program that they started to roll out in one section of the island. So we'll wait to okay. see what the outcome is there. That is excellent. Um, outside of that, generally speaking, yeah, there's no doubt that we could you know, put more resources into healthcare locally or per, per capita spending on health from the budget is just not adequate. Uh, I think we've recognized that over a number of years and we're seeing the effects now in terms of, you know, problems with the aging plants and inadequate compensation for staff and high turnover and compounded by COVID and burnout and so on. So in terms of improving it, well, anything that you want to do does require some resources. So shifting priorities, trying to convince those who are in the whole the purse strings that shifting resources to health to better the health is is the way to you know improve the island's productivity because obviously a healthy nation is more productive that's the first thing how to achieve it there are various things that the government is looking at you know that the public-private partnerships is probably the first thing that um, is mentioned whenever someone comes up with um, any new initiative. It's usually married to some type of partnerships, and partnerships are important because unless you're going to increase your revenue by taxing, then there's no other way of actually, you know, allocating resources effectively when it's limited. I, only thing I would say though. If you want my take on it, yeah, is definitely. that the the public-private partnerships that we're seeing are not going to be effective in the long term. So, what we probably need to do is shift the thinking, whereby um, 
yes, public private partnerships are great. And that's because the private se- sector has proven that they're able to deliver high quality, efficient, profit based model. And that's what you want. Um, what you but what you want to do is to be able to transfer that system into the public sphere. So let me give you an example then. So let's say um, you wanted to roll out colonoscopy as the, the the capacity in the country, which at the moment is you know underserved. The current model is likely to be let us partner with you know the private areas that are doing colonoscopy and pay them a percentage to take on patients from the public clinics and hospitals and so on. So they'll do like 10 per month, yeah. right? So that's the current model that's being employed, which is fine, fine for the 10 patients who get it done every month. Um, and it's fine for the units that own the facility because obviously they get, even though it's a subsidized um, amount in terms of not the full cost and so on, but they still are contributing in that way. And it may seem to be a good thing. But in 20 years' time, when the private facility closes because the person is retiring or whatever is happening, they move away or whatever, then you no longer have this available. And so you've not increased the capacity of the public system to take on any further screening. So what I think should happen is that, yeah, we're going to partner with the center doing colonoscopy, but you're going to give them, let's say, five years to recover the cost of development of the system. So you're going to call the private system um, and say to them, okay, come in and develop an endoscopy center at the KPH or wherever it is. You're going to run it just like how you run your private practice. Okay. But you're going to run it and take the profits and whatnot for five years so you can recover your costs and make back your little profit or whatever it is. But in that time, you benefit because we're going to give you you know tax write-offs and lower import duty so you can bring in all the equipment you need and we're going to have staff available from the public system being trained through your facility and at the end of the time at the end of five years or ten years you would have transferred the equipment the personnel and the know-how into the public system so all the protocols and so on that are used to create the area and all the staff that rotates and trains through there and everything, at the end of the time, you leave it behind for the public system. So in that way, you build the capacity in the public system over time. So that's how I see this partnership going. It's time limited. So that at the end of the day, what is developed is left for the public system with the protocols and so on in place having trained over the last five years, 10 years, whatever the duration is. And hopefully, you know, if there's a a robust management system in place and maintenance, because all they're doing is following the template of the private system. Mm -hmm. 
And so in that way, you build the capacity and transfer the knowledge and expertise and information. And the individuals in the private system are not losing out in the interim because they are able to recover in the early stage. It's just that they're transferring everything at the end of the time. And so that's what just, I see. And you could just replicate that to, to use the example. Exactly. Over and over and Any, over and then. That's right. That is a wonderful idea. The only negative I can see with it is the actual individuals doing the procedure, which I suppose as time passes, Meaning? More, the actual. So if you leave the suite functioning, you would need somebody to do a colonoscopy. And that yes. is where the expertise so, would be required. Well, right. So remember now, when you're staffing these units, both with support staff and medical health staff, doctors and nurses and so on, you're using the staff from the public system. I see. I see. So that's where the, you know, that's how you're transferring knowledge as well as equipment and so on. I see. So it will always be staffed by the public system. You're not staffing it with your own private office. I see. I see. But well, that is a wonderful idea, sir.